Hi, everybody. Welcome to the May 22nd, 2015 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on former Colorado Attorney General John Southers winning the mayoral election of Colorado Springs this week, defeating former Mayor Mary Lou Makepeace. Patty Calhoun from Westward, uh, we heard about these plans from John Southers a few months ago, so it wasn't a, a shock, but uh, he was a clear winner. I, I think officially his opponent uh, conceded a few minutes after 7 o'clock the polls closed. Uh, what do you think of John Southers' new position? I think it's a fascinating move for him. Here's a person who truly believes in public service. He was thinking about it last summer, running for mayor. That was right when all the gay marriage issues were coming down, and although I don't agree a lot with John Southers on some of his political stances. I don't think anyone can disagree that he's a very honorable man who works hard and has the common good at heart. David Culpo from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. Uh, can John Southers help, which is uh, Colorado Springs, one of Colorado's biggest cities? What do you think his impact is going to be? Well, he, he certainly aims to have a, a big impact, and I think he was, in, to some degrees, a, a Chamber of Commerce-type candidate. With six, I think he got 69% of the vote, which means, besides the Chamber of Commerce, a lot of other people liked him as well. His theme has been to, to get Colorado Springs moving again, uh, and I think reading between the lines, he is going to, down the line, be pushing for a large tax increase uh, for infrastructure development, perhaps also for corporate welfare as well. Uh, we'll, we'll see what that, that happens, but I, I think he's, he's aiming to be a very energetic and uh, transformational mayor for the city. Penfield Tate, attorney at Greenbridge Trawrig, also a longtime state lawmaker. Uh, does John Southers bring enough uh, gravitas to move the needle in Colorado Springs, which is pretty conservative and also known to really buck a lot of, uh, like as Dave was speaking about, government spending trends, whether it's for infrastructure or anything else? Can he make it happen? Yeah, I think he does move the needle for several reasons. As Patty said, he's an honorable man. Uh, he's a stand-up guy, and he's a smart man, and, and he's established his management credentials. So I think for a city like Colorado Springs that's only had a strong mayor for former government for going on five years now, he is probably the ideal guy to come in now. He's clearly got a mandate. 69 to 32 is a pretty good mandate. He'll come in, and he is conservative, but what's interesting is he. I think John's a pragmatist, and he, he, he's a conservative coming into a city that he knows has not invested in core infrastructure and has not done some of the things to keep the city competitive with Denver and other suburban communities in the Denver metro area, and he's talked openly about a need to reinvest in the community, which, given where we are in Colorado, means you're going to have to put forth some tax increase measures, and I think John's the guy who, who will be measured, who, who will be judicious, but who will push forward because he wants to move the city forward and help it develop. It's going to be an interesting time for Colorado Springs. Mm -hmm. Care to get editor of the Greater Park Hill News. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, Colorado Springs is a very unique city. What do you think John Southern's impact will be? Well, um, as you know, and thanks for having me on today. Um, as you know, I was in the I was in the Springs for many many years um, as a as a journalist covering. Um, that very conservative city, and of course, um, John Southers is an affable, 
very honorable guy. He's he has um, committed his career to public service, and he should be commended for that. I do have a little bit of a different take, though, in that um, you know I think Colorado Springs voters have certainly spoken, and overwhelmingly, they've said they want more of the same. Um, his opponent was you know was Mary Lou Makepeace, who is also a former mayor of Colorado Springs, but who was considered much more moderate to liberal uh, in the city. And, um, you know, with Southers being elected uh, as mayor, um, we've got, you know, a, a 63-year-old um, um, white male who is in charge of a nine-member city council um, with no people of color on it and only two women. And the average age of the council is 62.4 years old. So I think if they want to really ignite their um, economy and draw in some young, dynamic um, um, people and companies, they're really going to have to get creative in figuring out ways to, um, to make that happen. So best of luck to them. Just hours before a shutdown deadline, a short-term deal was reached in the House this week that would keep construction going at Aurora's VA hospital if the Senate agrees to the bill. The proposal would lift the cap on the project another $20 million, which officials believe should sustain construction for another three weeks. Patty, uh, as of this taping, uh, Friday at noon, we don't know if the Senate's uh, officially approved this bill or not uh, before they head off to Memorial Day um, vacation. Um, assuming they do, it's still only three more weeks uh, at the VA hospital. It's not like they've solved the problem. Uh, what do you think of this stopgap solution? Well, how can the Senate not approve this incredibly limp that, uh, proposal that does nothing except extend the horror for another 20 days? They have to do it. On Memorial Day weekend, mm. they're going to shut down the construction on this facility for veterans, the people who have been so mistreated over and over and over in this project. But the fact is, this is just another $20 million that's already in the budget. They had just put a cap on spending it. It doesn't solve the problem of the fact that we're three times over what that hospital was supposed to cost, that we are nowhere near done. And there have been a lot of complaints about even if and when it's done, will it be the right kind of facility for the care these veterans need? So somebody in Congress should be taking a long, hard look. They should have been doing it years ago. But Colorado's delegation is very clear in the fact heads should roll and somebody organized should make sure this project really goes through the right way now. David, uh, Congress kicking the can down the road uh, just a couple more weeks is a trend we've seen on a lot of issues. Do you think that will be how they address this in the future, just again giving them just enough time to not really tackle the big issue? Well, Congress's problem, of course, is it can appropriate money, but it's the executive branch which has the job of then spending the money. And it, the VA is, in its hospital construction, is a disaster, and not just in Aurora. You've got four hospitals. You've got New Orleans, Orlando, and Las Vegas hospital construction projects going on by the VA, uh, just as bad. Huge, enormous costs over, cost overruns. Projects way behind, and we're we're way better than Las Vegas. They're 74 months behind their schedule. Uh, so, so Aurora's, uh, you know, relatively speaking, one of the, the best managed VA hospital construction <laughs> projects going on. That's so sad. The, the Washington Post uh, had an article this week by from a news from a VA whistleblower. They've spent six billion billion dollars illegally in violation 
of their own contracting rules. President Obama, I think accurately in his 2008 campaign, said there's a lot of problems at the VA and this is a real disservice uh, to the veterans, but then when he became president, started doing all these new VA projects as a social welfare agency and homelessness and things like that, without the, appointed a political general who might have been good for fighting wars, Eric Shinseki, uh, but was obviously terrible at managing the VA. Finally, after this fiasco's gone on for years and neglect and falsification, uh, the president appointed a new guy, former head of Procter & Gamble, who maybe knows how to manage a large organization. And we do see, you know, nine months later or so after that guy came in, uh, they got rid of the guy who was in charge of VA hospital construction with a $64,000 bonus on the way out. Uh, so hopefully this is beginning to turn around. But what a, what a catastrophe it's been. And what if we'd just given these vets vouchers uh, to get the care wherever they can get it instead of wasting all this money on, on failed construction projects? Penn, with this just, again, going probably another three weeks, again, if the Senate uh, did approve this bill, and probably no solution coming down in the very near future, does this become uh, a hot potato for the political campaigns in 2016, both for the U.S. Senate and for the presidential race? Absolutely. I, I mean, first, uh, we ought to agree that this is our joint rolling disgrace of the week until a <laughs> exactly. solution is, is established. But, but by kicking the can down the road another three weeks, what Congress is really doing is saying we have no choice but to just waste a whole bunch of money and finish because just abandoning the construction project here and in New Orleans and in Las Vegas, just stopping the projects is not politically feasible. No one will accept that result. So, so you would hope that a combination of the right people getting fired and, and, and different people being put in charge of these construction projects, you know, pick an agency like the Army Corps of Engineers or someone that builds something for a living. Um, I'm not convinced that the VA ought to focus on infrastructure construction as much as making sure his health care is delivered to veterans, whether through privately owned and operated or nonprofit hospitals. I don't know if I'd go as far as David does with the voucher, but some other structure needs to be, to, to be established. And it's not just the administration. Part of this fault, I think, lies with Congress. This isn't the first time these construction projects have been so massively over budget and so woefully behind schedule, but Congress keeps appropriating money and doesn't solve the problem. We need Congress to step up and come, come up with, with a solution also. It'll be a hot potato for all of them running for re-election. Kara, does what we saw this week a sign that uh, it's only going to get worse or that there's maybe a light at the end of the tunnel that's going to get better? Well, I don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. I don't think any of us do. I don't know if anybody does. But what else can be done but to finish it? We can't just let it sit there unfinished as a monument to waste and mismanagement, right? Um, but, you know, I mean, adding to what Pan just said, you know, you, absolutely Congress has to take some responsibility, and, you know, so does the administration. I mean, and, and as Patty pointed out, the irony, of course, is that this latest happening right before Memorial Day is just a travesty. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Mm -hmm. A scathing independent review of the Denver Sheriff's Department was released this week. The report ordered by Mayor Michael Hancock in 2014 showed several operational flaws ranging from staff members being unable to accurately count inmates to inadequate emergency safety plans. 
you heard me correctly, to not be able to count inmates correctly. David, um, th this report, and, and every high-priced consultant is going to come out with a pretty big report. That wasn't a shock, but I think it was like 277 recommendations. What must the mayor and the city government of Denver do in response to this review? First of all, kudos to Mayor Hancock for going to a very high-quality outside source for this review, and he's they, they, they did a thorough job, identified a lot of problems, and he said we're going to go forward and we're going to implement every single one of these reforms. So that's exactly the right thing to do. Now, Susan Green uh, of the Colorado Independent wrote an article saying, you know, great, but on the other hand, when you look at the team that Mayor Hancock has to implement these, these are all the same people who were in charge when the problems were going on in, in the first place. Some of these things are not uh, cutting-edge jail management issues. You know, there's a professional organization, the American Jail Association, that, that sets standards, provides professional training, all, all these things, and, and many of them are, are, are very obvious. For example, when there's a problem with an inmate, you don't necessarily have to use force as the first resort. You clearly want to be able to use force if you have to, but it doesn't have to be the first resort. And that is not something uh, that's on the cutting edge of jail management. So it, it's really shocking that things are, are so badly managed at the Denver jail. Mayor Hancock didn't cause, like President Obama with the VA, he didn't cause the problem. He inherited it didn't do much about it in his first term. Hopefully that'll change. You wonder about the alternate history world if in 2003, Ari Zavaris, the former police chief, had won that mayoral race against John Hickenlooper because Zavaris, among other things, had been head of the Colorado Department of Corrections running the state prison system, which, imperfect, is a lot better managed than the Denver jail. And maybe if, if Mayor Zavaris had been around, he would have been more hands-on about getting the, uh, the Denver jail up to the minimal national standards of, of competence. Penn, I didn't go through every part of the recommendations, but just a peripheral view seemed that it's going to take some funds and it's going to take some uncomfortable house cleaning. Um, Mayor Hancock just got reelected with a with, with no real opponent, so uh, he can say he has a pretty strong mandate. Does he have the political will and the capital at this point to make those uncomfortable decisions and to make this happen? Well, first credit to Mayor Hancock for having the the, the studies conducted. Uh, he's got to have the political will. He has no choice because we can't afford to let the current situation continue. It's a public relations nightmare. It's an embarrassment. And frankly, we don't have enough money to keep paying all these judgments for all these, you know, inmates who keep getting beat up. Uh, so you've got to stop the bleeding at some point. I think the mayor knows that. And so we're going to have to see significant reform. We're going to have to see some personnel changes. It's not just dollars. My guess is that the, the, the sheriff's department is probably significantly understaffed. So there's going to have to be some more hiring. And I don't know how many applicants are in the pipeline. My guess is not enough to meet the needs. So there are a number of things that need to happen. But when you look at the report, you know, what it really speaks to, some of the things they talk about are common sense. You can't count inmates. You don't know where they are. Seriously. Um, but a lot of it is, speaks to really a significant change in the mindset and the approach to corrections and 
management of inmates. Remember, most of the people the sheriff's department deals with are people who are awaiting trial, not people who've been convicted of anything. And, and, and so you're dealing with folks who are under that presumption of innocence until proven guilty. And so there's a different standard that really has to be applied to this particular population. No, it's going to be a tough choice. But given the fact that the mayor didn't have much opposition, he should feel the latitude to make some pretty radical and drastic changes and bruise a few, e few egos and, and upset a few folks, but that's what it's going to take to fix this. The, we've been talking about this for months. This is just a massive mess, and it's going to take a Herculean effort to fix it. Carrie, you go through some of these uh, problems that this report revealed. It, uh, sheriffs didn't know uh, which gang affiliation uh, was in which cell, so they, who knows if they put a competing gangs right in the middle of a cell. They didn't know exactly the accurate number of things. It, it, it sounded like Barney Fife was in charge. Uh, what do you think it's going to take to make these changes happen? Well, the you know the re the report found dysfunction at every level within the sheriff's office at every level. That's astonishing, and um, and Penn's right, of course, again that um, this has been going on for so long, and and so what what is it going to take to uh, convince the administration and convince Mayor Hancock to? Um, take a look at at cleaning house from the top down and or from the bottom up it doesn't matter but making sure that um, these law enforcement um, officers and and uh, folks in the jail are trained uh, you know not as warriors but as law enforcement um, and um, if you know the civil if the repeated civil rights violations that are occurring um, isn't enough to get his attention, then yes, I would think the massive payouts that are happening, you know, $11 million since 2011 um, or $12 million since 2011, um, you'd think that the, you know, money should start, you know, grabbing the ears of, of not only Mayor Hancock, but the taxpayers. Patty, uh, Mayor Hancock's going to have a relatively new city council, a lot of new faces, at least six new faces. Uh, how do you think that's going to affect what he wants to do? Well, everybody on city council and in any, every level of city government should want changes. This is outrageous. And the fact that we've had to wait for this report, the report definitely was worth waiting for, but they could have done some changes in the meantime. We could have maybe cut back on some of those $12 million in the settlements. What's fascinating about this report, besides the incredible depths, more than 270 suggestions, is the reference to Dickens. I guess we should be glad that they didn't refer to Solzhenitsyn, and, and because really the only thing worse than what we're hearing about Denver jail would be calling it a gulag. Uh, and ironically, Denver voters, less than a decade ago, voted to tax ourselves so we could build a state-of-the-art jail and justice system, which we obviously don't have. So people... Hancock didn't have any opposition when he was running, really, but he will get opposition, I think, from residents to paying out for any more settlements because of incompetence at the Sheriff's Department. With just over 10 days until Denver City Council runoff election, let's take a look at the four runoff races in Districts 2, 7, 10, and 11. Penn, uh, 
Well, I know these are probably under the radar for a lot of folks. I mean, these are just districts within Denver, so there's, not everyone can vote with them. But there's some pretty tight races, and they're getting uh, pretty vociferous between each other. I know uh, District 11 by itself has made a lot of headlines. Um, you can take your pick. You can go general. What do you think? You know, that they are. And thank goodness for them, because it's it's been the only drama this municipal <laughs> election cycle is all of these city council races. I just wish the charter was different, and it'd be the top three or four vote-getters in a councilmatic race instead of the top two, so you could keep mm -hmm. some of the drama going. But you, you mentioned District Ele uh, 11, where we have um, Stacey Gilmore, who is an executive director of a nonprofit, and um, Sean Bradley, who's also the executive director of a nonprofit. Um, there have been accusations back and forth about conflicts of interest. Both of their nonprofits do business with the city, have contract contracts. Stacy's husband is the deputy director of the Department of, of Parks and Recreation, which has got to create an issue for the mayor and for her should she get elected. So that one's high on the radar screen. You've got District 2 where we've got a veteran um, reporter and Kevin Flynn running against someone who was described to me, John Kidd, as the only Republican in municipal races throughout the city. He's been endorsed by Jeannie Fotts, uh, former Secretary of State Scott Gessler, and a host of other Republican office holders. Um, I think many thought that had Two state rep, Democratic state reps, Gene Labuda and Fran Coleman, had not been in the primary that Kevin might have won outright the first round. We'll see. It is probably one of the more conservative areas of the city out in southwest Denver. We'll see how that goes. Um, Jolyn Clark and um, Aaron Greco uh, are running off in um, seven. Um, Clark's been endorsed by The Post. Greco's been endorsed by Ed Perlmutter and a bunch of other sort of high-level politicos, but there's a legitimate question whether that translates in a city council race where sometimes neighborhood group endorsements are far more powerful than an endorsement from the president or first lady or anybody like that. And, and finally, District 10, I think it's Wayne New and Anna Jones. I think both two veteran folks who have been active in the community, both have a um, long list of supporters. Um, they're all going to be interesting races. Uh, and uh, it's, it's going to impact, I think, the direction of the city council just because I, I think they all bring some different perspectives from their communities. Kara, what do you think with the runoff race coming up? Well, I think that um, the the impact um, of the and the outcome of of those races is going to um, be important. But I think from a bigger picture, um, the city council now is is really what has emerged is that um, the issue is is going to be moving forward. Um, this uh, develop the question over development versus neighborhood groups and. Uh, whether or not um, the city council is going to continue to, um, you know, provide, you know, just open door policy to developers without um, really um, engaging in long-term planning, including traffic planning. Um, so I think that the spotlight is really starting to emerge um, with that. Patty, what do you think? Well, and in fact, if we, you look at District 1, where I happen to live, you can see that is the big issue. People do are upset with the development. They're upset with what seemed like a rubber stamp for all development projects. They want, they're upset with the incumbents or the people who seem to be allied with the movers, the traditional movers and shakers. So I think we'll see some of those upsets coming in the runoff. I do, I don't want to give him the kiss of death by saying what a great city council person he would be, but Kevin Flynn, who covered city council for many years, would be a really great asset there. David. 
the, the Kevin Flood John Ken, John Kidd race is the only one where there's really a notable ideological difference between the two candidates. The other three races, it's very you got to look very hard to find find that. Uh, so it's more of a personality type thing. I would say kudos to the Denver Post, which on Denver Post TV has posted interviews and debates with with all the candidates, so people can inform themselves. Absolutely, I was, I was very happy to see. In fact, we got some of the information about this from that. So it's great. Uh, let's get to our favorite part of the show, disgrace of the week. Patty, as always, start us off. Well, once again, I have to say, Mother Nature is a bitch for these. <laughs> everyone who's got great Memorial Day plans, all the good nonprofit charity events, all the incredible plans that are out there, big damper put on them by Mother Nature this weekend. David. Well, the uh, leading Jew-hating organization in the movement in the United States, the Boycott Divest Sanction Movement Against Israel, the Illinois legislature took a stand against them and said anybody who participates in one of their anti-Semitic, anti-Israel boycotts uh, will no longer get investments from the Illinois Pension Fund. Ben. Well, contrary to what Patty said, I love Mother Nature, and on behalf of Denver Water, use only what you need. Um, my, my disgrace of the week, you know, the Jeffco School District, I can't understand why you would not want your governor to do a bill signing on testing students in one of your schools in one of the largest districts in the state and citing security reasons. It just seems bizarre. Care. This oil spill in California off the coast, that, which is now nine miles long, and the operator is saying that uh, he doesn't even know and is, will not know for weeks, maybe months, what even caused it. See something nice about somebody rather quickly? Patty. A good move by a Senate committee uh, for veterans, which approved a bill that would let veteran, VA hospital doctors prescribe medical marijuana for soldiers suffering from PTSD. Jeffco David. Superintendent um, McKinney, who said, no, Governor, you can't come in at 8.20 in the morning in a high school with 2,100 students in the middle of final exams and say you're going to have your big event there, but if you want to go to an elementary school or some other place where finals are not an issue or you want to do it later in the afternoon, that's okay, but we're not going to toss over uh, the day, a really tough day in the educational system uh, just in order to uh, for you to have your press conference at the only school you claim is acceptable to you. Ben. <laughs> the, there's a memorial service today for a good friend in one of Colorado's treasures we recently lost. Impresario, promoter, and all-around good guy Lou Vassan passed away this week. His services today, he, he'll be sorely missed. Um, he single-handedly revived and helped establish the Bill Pickett Rodeo here in Colorado for black cowboys. Kara. Kudos to uh, CDOT for uh, proving a million dollars to keep the Amtrak going through Pueblo. Oh, nice. That's all the time we have tonight. Thanks for tuning in. Remember that if you missed any part of the show or want to catch our web-exclusive segment CIO Postgame, check out CPT12.org or YouTube. And also be sure to check out the CIO podcast on iTunes. And you won't want to miss our new magazine series, Street Level, Tuesdays at 8 p.m., looking at the food, arts, and community stories of some of our historic streets all throughout the city. For everyone here at Channel 12, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thanks very much for watching. Good night. Thank you.